0: Preaching of God's word then is in Galatians and Chapter Five. Galatians Chapter Five, verses sixteen through eighteen. Galatians Five, verses sixteen through eighteen. This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. These are contrary the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. But if ye be led of the Spirit, ye are not under the law." These three verses come to us in the context of Paul dealing with what are known as the Judaizing uh, ways that were infiltrating Galatia. So there were those who were known as Judaizers who would enter into Christianity, whether as Jews or as those who have dabbled in Jewish teaching, and they would wish to add to Christian observances Jewish customs. So circumcision was something of great significance that had much attention, but likewise the Jewish calendar. And so Paul elsewhere says, you observe days and months and times and years. He says, I'm afraid of you. Think of that for a moment. Paul doesn't say, as a Jew of Jews and Hebrew of Hebrews, Pharisee of Pharisees. He doesn't say, this is great. This is the mark of maturity. But if you look at Galatians 4, he says, verse 11, I am afraid of you, lest I have bestowed upon you labor in vain. You have returned to that which is no longer binding. You have looked to that which is undone. And you have left the simplicity of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he says we're no longer under the ceremonies of the Old Covenant. We're no longer to observe those things that were put upon our fathers, but rather are given liberty to walk in accordance to the simplicity of Christ's way and the moral law that is therein identified. So chapter 5, verse 1, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Notice he launches into circumcision. And so he's not talking about the proper walk of love, observing the moral law, the Ten Commandments, he's talking about this false standard of the ceremonies being brought back into uh, the Christian church. And so this is why Paul is interested in helping them to walk rightly. But to do so, he directs them to the true source of godly living, which is, of course, the Spirit. This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. What this helps us to see is that those ceremonies, similar to what we read in God's providence, Matthew 15, were being observed in an attempt to deal with spiritual problems. So this is something about all false piety. It makes an attempt of outward things unwarranted from God's Word to address spiritual issues. This is truth of, the truth of one part of legalism. So there are two types of legalism. One form is the predominant form, which turns the observance of the law, the moral law even, into the way by which we would have righteousness before God. That's a way of justification by the works of the law. That's one form of legalism. A second way is a legalism, not that it's unrelated, but a second way is a legalism, which says we're going to do certain things that are in addition to what God has prescribed. So we're adding laws to our observance of piety and true religion. That's what's going on with Paul's address here. He's saying you're trying to do things in order to address a problem that is a problem, but with means and efforts that cannot address it. And so with that, What you have is Paul then saying, here's the real solution. Here's the way of addressing the issue of your stumbling. It's not by adding on false observances. It's by being led of the Spirit. Because the carnal efforts of flesh through the vain traditions of men will never address the root cause. So you'll notice what Paul says Walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And then he acknowledges that there's a war. He says the flesh, that carnal part remaining in the Christian, lusteth against the Spirit. It's desiring contrary to the motions and workings of the Spirit. So the Spirit would say, we're going to walk in the way of righteousness. And remaining lusts say, no, we're going to walk contrary to that. So in other words, this lust, the word that's here translated lusteth, is not something that's dealing exclusively with sexual desires. That's often how our common world hears that. But really, it's talking about desires itself. That's why it says that the Spirit against the flesh. In other words, if you were to fill that out, the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit lusteth against the flesh. They desire contrary things. The remaining part of sin in the Christian Desires the path of sin, whereas the Spirit's work, renewing the Christian, desires the path of righteousness. They're opposite uh, directions. And so what we have here is an embattled Christian. But you'll notice this is universal to all Christians. This isn't reserved for the front line and front rank of uh, the militant church in this world. This is true of every single one who's been converted. In other words, once converted, there is a new war that is begun. So it's right for us to think there's a war for souls, right? There are unbelievers who are entrenched in sin and there's a battle going forth to recover them by the gospel means that they would be saved. However, in another way, we can say once converted they are entered upon a lasting war that will never end until their death in this life. Now, this could be discouraging. And indeed, there is a sobering reality here that makes a lot of the you know, trivial things of this world seem indeed trivial as they are. But you'll notice that Paul says that there's hope. If you be led of the Spirit, you're not under the law. You're not left to those old customs of the Jewish economy, and you're certainly not left to the observances of days and months and times and years. Or if you go to Colossians, you're not under the additions of false teachers who through vain philosophy would set new burdens upon us. What's he saying? There's hope as you walk in the Spirit. There's victory as by the Spirit, as Paul says elsewhere, you put to death the deeds of the body and live. So here is the sobering reality. If you're a Christian, you are in this war. You can't opt out of it. You can't say, I'm going to take a reprieve for a moment, take a break, and then I'll come back. You're always, so long as you have breath in this life, in the midst of the war. It's never something that you're not engaged in. But there's also then encouragement because you have been provided the person who is guaranteeing the victory within you. Not only for you, which is the person of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, but in you, which is Christ by the person of His Spirit. So the Spirit has been given to the believer by whom then the Christian is able to resist the carnal lusts of this world and walk in the true liberty which belongs to the sons of God. So it's this new war we wish to consider, firstly looking at the cause Secondly, the experience. And thirdly, the victory. The cause, the experience, and the victory. So the cause then of this new war. What we can say is it's twofold. We'll look at the first of those now. And the first is that there is a new principle given to the converted believer. Once converted, they really have new life. And so you go back to what we've considered already in our series on conversion. How it is that conversion is the effect of a sovereign work of God and regeneration. So uh, Jesus says to Nicodemus, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And so the Spirit must come upon one and give them this new life. Elsewhere we hear of it, As a principle of life granted the heart. So the heart of stone is removed, and the heart of flesh, that is a living heart, is given. And so the very center and essence of all that we are is made new. This is the fruit of the Lord's great grace, which then is what makes us able to embrace Christ, trust in Christ, and walk with Christ. So you go back to some of the things we've considered. The converted man has a new principle. That is, he has a new life. So you look at 2 Corinthians and chapter 5, notice at verse 12, it's there that we read uh, that we commend not ourselves unto you, um, not ourselves unto you, but give you occasion to glory in our behalf that you may have somewhat to answer them which glory in appearance and not in heart. And so he goes further and says in verse 14, the love of Christ constraineth us because... We thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them, and rose again. And finally, verse 17, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new." The only way truly of enlisting in this war is by grace being converted. A new principle is given because prior to that, though we're in the war, we're on the wrong side. We're resisting Christ. We would refuse Christ. We would deny Christ. It's not that we would necessarily do so in an irreligious way. We may be very religious. The Pharisees were such. But they were on the side that was opposing Christ through their religion, however heralded, and paraded by men as good. But so soon as God converts a believer, they are brought with a new life to stand on the opposite side for the cause of Christ. They have life in them. And you'll notice what happens. Romans chapter 6. There is such a thing as union with Christ, which is the cause of this life. So he says, verse 3 of Romans 6, Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into His death. There's how we died to sin. Therefore we are buried with Him by baptism into death. Like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so, we also should walk in newness of life. And it goes further, which you can read later today perhaps. The point is this. That the converted one has been given new life by virtue of union with Christ. So that now, as we heard else on a previous occasion, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. This is the cause of this war. If there weren't this reality, we would either be bystanders cheering on the enemy or actively involved as the enemy against Christ. But Christ converts us, gives us life, causes us to see the world as it is, causes us to see something of the beauty of God and of Christ and of His kingdom, and we say, that's worth living for. That's worth advancing. Whatever else my life is to be given to, that is to be preeminent. So this new principle of new life has been given, which then gives us a massive transformation to stand against the kingdom of darkness. So He pulls us out of darkness and plants us in the kingdom of light so that now we would withstand the darkness. He brings us out of death into life so that we would withstand death. It is this gracious work which also gives us, as we considered, a new treasure. So this new life is joined with a new treasure which, of course, the new treasure is preeminently Christ Himself. Philippians 3 and verse 8, Paul says, Doubtless I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung that I may win Christ. Everything is beneath Christ. The beauty of Christ. The glory of Christ. Psalm 45 becomes not just a form of sound words, but a living expression of the delights of our soul. He is the fairest of all men. There's none more beautiful than He. None more to be desired than He. He is the sum total of all that is delightful and to be desired. There's a new treasure, and it is found in the person of Jesus Christ you think of mercenaries, it's not just a historical reality. There are mercenaries today. Hired hands for war. Why are they fighting? Well, they're not fighting because they agree with the political agenda. They're not fighting because it's a war of uh, justice. They're not fighting even for uh, their political rights and so on. They're they're fighting because of the money they're going to get. Whoever pays them the most, they'll be on that side to fight. Well, in a gracious sense, we can say Christians are rightly mercenaries because they are fighting because of the treasure which is theirs. The treasure of Christ. They're fighting for the riches that are theirs and which are held forth to them. They delight in the riches, not of this world, but of Christ and of heaven. There's a treasure that would move them to resist all of the enemies which would stand against Him. It's not that they're hired hands, strictly considered. It's that their hearts have been changed to see the true treasure of the Lord Jesus Christ, and they say, that is worth my life. And it's important to realize this. It's not just that they say, that's worth my death. If something's worth your death, it's worth your life. Some of you need to come to terms with this. You ask yourself the wrong question. You ask yourself, if someone put a gun to my head and said, deny Christ, would I be able to deal with that and be willing for that person to pull the trigger by my saying, I'll never deny Christ? Some of you have nothing put up against your head, and yet you're willing to deny Christ. Why is that the case? Why is it that when you're with certain friends, when you're with certain workers, when you're in certain places of this world, you have no hesitation to talk like the world, to live like the world, to treasure the things of the world. Why is that the case? Because your eyes are closed to the treasures of Christ. So soon as your eyes see the beauty of Christ, so soon as you are caught by the wondrous, incomparable riches of Christ, you'll say there's not a friend in this world, not a family member that I know, not a mother, father, husband, daughter, sister, whoever it might be, Who can compare to the treasures I find, the satisfaction, the riches I have in Christ? He is all. And so, whatever else I lose, I will never lose that which means most. This makes us willing to contend, to contend against kings and queens. To contend against spouses, to contend against parents, to contend against children, to contend against neighbors and kind people and generous people and simple people and complicated people. It gives us this engagement because we have found the true treasure that is worth our engagement. Moreover, we have a new guide. New treasure is Christ. We're told to set our mind on things above where Christ is. Think of that. It's where Christ is. There's our treasure. But our new guide, of course, is His will. You see this in the commission He gives to the church, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. The Word of God is to be our guide. And here's the great thing. The Word runs counter to the culture. There's, no real, there, there's nothing real about a notion of uh, culturally acceptable Christianity. Now, we don't mean by that that we dress in archaic fashions and we speak in archaic expressions and so on. What we mean is, of the moral things, we will always be against the world. Because our guide is the Word. The Word of God is our guide in matters of how we live, how we carry ourselves, how we speak, and all of these things. And when the world hears that, They ridicule it. They mock it. They call it out of uh, fashion. They call all of these things. But you see, we're not walking by the drumbeat of the world. Our guide is now God in His Word. This is why the Word is precious to us. It's God's Word. It's taught us the way of salvation. And it teaches us the way to walk as those who are saved. And when you put these things together, the new life planted within us, the new treasure that fills our affections, and the new guide that directs us, you see one part of the reason there's a war. The other part is that there's an old enemy. So whereas there's a new principle, the other cause is that there's an old enemy. And this is true in two ways. The first is that there is, of course, Satan who motivates the world, who stands, as elsewhere said, as the God of this world, not as uh, truly divine, but as the ruler of the ways of this world, its thoughts and patterns and actions and speech and so on. And the world delights in Satan. It's a striking thing. you know. We read in the Scriptures, we just read in Matthew 15 of a case of demon possession. But brethren, we need to understand this. Even though one may not be demon-possessed, They are demonically governed. Every single unconverted person is demonically governed. Let's be clear. We're not saying that they're the demoniac. We're not saying they are that Mary out of whom seven demons were cast. We don't mean that personal, as it were, filling up of the demon. We mean simply what Paul acknowledges in Ephesians chapter 2. When he says in verse 1, You were dead in trespasses and sins, and in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. Do you see that? Even we, in our unconverted state, were those who were demonically governed. The prince of the power of the Of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. He's guiding, directing, and helping us along in the rebellion. What it means is fundamentally, His laws are our delight. The most civil, refined, dignified person in this world, unconverted, is one who delights in the laws of a rebel. Those who have done quote-unquote great good and yet are unconverted are motivated to follow the dictates of that demon, even Satan. If your parents are unconverted, if your children are unconverted, if your spouse is unconverted, deep in the dark places of their heart, they delight in the guidance of Satan. Say, wait a second, that seems quite strong. Well, it's tremendously strong. It's not meant to be something that's little and easy and so on. Your grandchildren, unconverted, would follow Satan. The point is, as Christ said, it's out of the heart that proceed these evil things. And think of what Satan delights in. He delights in those evil things. And he would guide them unto those evil things. And they would gladly follow after those evil things. These things work in tandem. Satan is the one, as it were, who's trying to manipulate and move and do all of these things to lead us into the way of sin. And once converted, that doesn't change. Satan is still as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And Christians are to take mind of that because this part of the old enemy is met with the other part of the old enemy which is remaining sin within us. Upon conversion, Though there is a radical change, transformation, sin is dethroned. It's taken off of the throne. It no longer is the governing guide and motivating principle for all things. And Christ is enthroned, yet in this life, in the heart of the Christian, sin remains. And so there is warfare within. And this is why Paul indicates in our passage that the Spirit Or The flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. Notice the sin within us, the flesh, is desiring things contrary to the Spirit. And so the sinful principle remains, which is a cause of that internal and ravaging war that goes on within us. This is the cause then of this new war. We can say something. Prior to the new principle, there's no war within us. Because there's only rebellion against God. There's war, but it's that we are enlisted against God. Once conversion takes place, there's a war now in us. Wherein God, by His Spirit, is not just working about the out thing, outward things of our lives, But he's working about our thoughts and our desires, our affections and desires of mind and heart and so on. And so this is where that new war is begun. Conversion initiates this matter, which leads us secondly to the experience of this new war, which, as Paul indicates, consists in these contrary motions or desires which are here expressed under the idea of lusting. The flesh, that remaining sin within us, is desiring contrary against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. Notice the simple statement, these are contrary the one to the other. This is your experience, Christian. If you start to analyze your life, and you've matured, and you're starting to reflect upon it, you say, why is it? That so soon as with sincerity I'm saying things in prayer like, God, make me to love so-and-so. Make me to take up the form of a servant to serve delightfully, sincerely, without complaint. And then so soon as the moment comes, there's a wrestling that takes place. Why is that the, the, the case? It's because of what Paul's just identified. Why is it the case that I say, Lord, I want my life to increase in meditation? And so soon as we set apart the time and we start to engage, our mind finds it the most miserable thing to engage in serious meditation upon God's Word, upon His truth. Why is it when we say, I'm going to set apart time for prayer, and we've cleared all the distractions that we could be in a Whited room with nothing else in it, we cannot bring our minds and our souls to labor for any extended amount of time in anything we would be ready to call prayer. Why is it on days of fasting and humiliation? We clear the work schedule. We clear everything. And we set it up in advance and we're preparing. Okay, I'm going to set apart this time for reading and meditation. And that, I'm going to take a quick walk so I get energy. And then I'm going to pray and I'm going to sing these psalms and read this chapter and listen to that sermon and talk with these Christians. That as we're engaged in those things, we find it loathsome to us. It's because of this war. It's because that within the Christian and only within the Christian there are two contending principles. The principle of life and the principle of sin. Whereas there are analogies to an unconverted person whose conscience is at work, it's not fully equal because the unconverted person has a conscience, which is God's vice-regent, condemning their sin, but they're left to their natural ability, which is nothing, and so they're Losing everything. The Christian, however, has the Spirit at work within them, giving them real desires, holy desires, longing desires to know and seek and follow Christ. And yet, to their shame, they experience this struggle. Paul mentioned this earlier in Romans in chapter 7. He testifies in verse 15. He says, That which I do. I allow not, for what I would, that is what I desire, that do I not, but what I hate, that do I. If then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good. Now then, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. For I know that in me, that is, in my flesh, notice that language, dwelleth no good thing. For the will is present with me, but how to to perform that which is good I find not. There is a battle that rages within the Christian. And whereas we acknowledge that a handful of even very godly men have taken this to be a matter of an unconverted Paul at the time, it's difficult to come to that view simply because the fact is that Paul is delighting in the law of God after the inward man. That's not an unconverted person. An unconverted person doesn't delight in the law of God after the inward man. An unconverted person despises the law of God after the inward man. Here's a converted Paul who's testifying of the struggle within. What does he do? He's brought then to cast all upon Christ when it is that he says, verse 22, I delight in the law of God after the inward man. I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind, bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so on. But The point is the experience of this is an excruciatingly difficult experience. Because there on one way is a real desire for the advance of God's kingdom in our lives, in the world. And we wish to be instruments of promoting that. And yet, likewise, in remaining sin, there is a desire to withstand that, to oppose it, and to be compromising regularly. All of which obstructs the activity that we both desire to do and know is right to do. And if we are ignorant of this, brethren, it is the cause of great confusion and even spiritual paralysis and loss of assurance. Because if somebody thinks, well, you know, a converted person can't actually struggle in this way, and they start to struggle this way, they're wrongly going to think this necessarily means I'm unconverted. But in fact, the opposite is true. There would be no struggle were there not conversion. This is why it's important to realize that Paul's not just talking about conscientious uh, acknowledging that this way is right, but there is a real longing and desire and attempted pursuit of the right way by God's grace which is opposed by this opposite desire of remaining sin, which then tangles us up and obstructs us in these things. Brethren, Some have said the Christian life is easy. We understand, perhaps, what is intended, but that statement is misleading. The Christian life is difficult. And we need only look at Christ who said, consider the cost before you enlist. Consider it well what's before you. If you're going to be My disciple, think of the language, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Me. Why would He say that? Because the only way by His grace to overcome remaining flesh is by the crucifying of the flesh by the Spirit of God. When you take up Christ, you necessarily enlist yourself in a targeting of your selfishness, which demands your personal death. To be a Christian, you must die. But it's not just you must initially die. It's that every day of your life there must be that death. Every day of your life you must say, I'm not my own. It's not my decision. It's not my desire. Because I have a new life. I have a new treasure. I have a new guide. The life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. It's not I that lives, but Christ who lives in me. I'm not my own, but I'm Christ who bought me with His blood. These are the things that have to be laid against us because there is the remnant of sin. Remember John says in 1 John, the man who says he's without sin is a liar and the truth is not in him. And so we admit the reality of indwelling sin as Paul mentions in Romans 7. And as he mentions here in Galatians 5, the flesh lusteth against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. These two are contrary, the one to another. And notice the obstruction so that you cannot do what you would. Here in Galatians 5, we see this experience, the trouble, the difficulty, and even the discouragement that comes From the experience of it all. But you'll also notice, thirdly, there is victory to be had. The sobering reality of the war within us and around us is not meant to overwhelm us to be discouraged. It is meant simply to secure to our mind and our pursuit the only source of hope in the war. And brethren, it's not in your ten steps. It's not in your uh, f- you know, various practical things you're going to do. It's rather in the Spirit of God. But if ye be led of the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now in context, this is saying you're no longer to observe those ceremonies and so on. But you'll notice the importance of what he starts with. If ye be led of the Spirit... He's pointing out the hope. It's the third person of the Blessed Trinity dwelling within you, enlivening you. So the hope of victory is not some personal principle within yourself that you've turned over a new leaf, you've started a new life, you're going to do better the next time, you're going to take these steps and that thing and rely upon yourself. It is rather a looking to God who has begun the good work to complete it in you. And so the whole experience of victory in one sense is a constant looking to God that He would work within you to will and to do of all of your good pleasure. If you miss this, you may be doctrinally reformed. You may be orthodox in all of your creeds. But you will not take one step in advance of true holiness. You may be able to cut off a lot of scandalous behavior. You may be able to white knuckle all sorts of certain forms but you will never know the joy of evangelical obedience and delight, walking in fellowship, moved by the Spirit, and more than that, drawn by Him to run. So we sometimes think of the life of the Christian as this you know, life of drudgery and we sort of have to slog through all sorts of things. Of course, there is that kind of experience in various ways. But we see in Song of Solomon, the simple petition, draw me and we will run after thee. There is a delight when the Spirit quickens us. And so you start to see what is it that is often taken up in petitions. You know, quicken us, O God. we sing in Psalm 80 that the Lord's blessing would flow to us by the head of Christ unto us, the members of His body, and that He would enliven us, quicken us, That we may call upon you. Isn't that interesting? We're saying even before we can joyfully engage in prayer, we need you already to work within us. We need you to come through and cause us to pursue these things. In other words, victory in the new war is not a new self-made way. It's not discovering new things that all the gurus are talking about. It's not by reading these ten steps and and, and so on. It's rather a radical reliance upon the Spirit of God. But we have to be clear, that's not us abandoning the use of means. It's not us saying, I'm not going to read the Bible diligently. I'm not going to come to church. I'm not going to memorize, meditate, pray, and so on. It's a using of the means with a conscious and deliberate casting of our hope upon the Spirit of God. So we approach the Word of God and we say, I need you to enlighten my mind. And brethren, this isn't something we're inventing. It's the piety of the Psalms. Read Psalm 119. And again and again, you'll be met with this. I'm reading your Word. I'm meditating upon your law. I'm giving myself day and night to the same." There's all manner of diligence. But in and through all of that, there are petitions multiplied by other petitions Quicken me. Revive me. Pour out Your Spirit unto me. All of these things. Enlighten me. Open my eyes. Incline my heart. What's being expressed is this. I will maintain the diligence by Your grace. But even in the diligence, I need more grace that I may grow and profit by it. So some of you have need simply to start with the littlest of things. You look at your week and you have to say, you know what? It's rare that I even open the Bible. It's rare that I have time to sing a psalm on my own. It's rare that in my family I lead in family worship or participate in family worship. It's rare that I'm diligent to start memorizing things. I say I'm too old and so on. That doesn't give us an excuse. That gives us a call for diligence. That something's difficult doesn't somehow say to us, I don't need to give diligence to it. If something's difficult, it's a call to be diligent. But brethren, some of you are so much on the diligence that you have made that your support and in effect, your hope of success. And the reality is, the diligence is but a means that must be enlivened. And so you may have all of the routines and you get your calendar out and you know all the dates that you're reading this and you're going to pray for these things and you've got it all organized and everything else, and you're ready to go through it, but you know by experience that you can check all of those boxes, read all of those chapters, pray about all of those petitions, give thanks for all of these things, and never once know any engagement of your soul in meditation, feasting upon Christ, Pouring out your heart to the Lord. Why is that? Because you've taken the scaffolding of the means and thought that was the building. You go to some of these big cities, St. Louis will have this, where they're scaffolding up repairing the bricks. And you look at the scaffolding and you say, well, I'm glad it's there because it's helping to get the building built. But none of us look at the scaffolding and say, oh, there's where the great beauty is. And we need to start looking at the means in some sense like that. They're means which help build the building of God's kingdom in us. And eventually, brethren, not in this life, but eventually the scaffolding will be withdrawn. Do you realize that? Eventually, you won't have the sacraments in heaven. You won't have the reading of God's Word in heaven. You won't have the way that we pray in earth in heaven. Because you will be in the immediate glorified presence of Jesus Christ. Right now, we see through a glass dimly. We have to lean upon the scaffolding of the means and praise God for these means. But we make use of the means in order to know the Living One who is building His Kingdom in us. So in no way do we set apart the means or set aside the means. Rather, we make use of the means looking through them to God to bless us by His Spirit. So practically, that means something. If the victory in the new war is not by ourselves and our devotions and so on, but rather as the Spirit gives life, that will cause us to pray in a different way. It will cause us to approach the reading of God's Word not by saying at 6 o'clock in the morning it's time for me to read my chapter or two chapters or five chapters or ten chapters. It's 6 o'clock in the morning. It's a time set apart. I need the Lord's help that I might read a word with spiritual improvement. That I might read a chapter, ten chapters, a whole book of the Bible with spiritual improvement. I must have God's Spirit working within me. Okay, it's time for church. Children, are you ready? Let's get ready for church and so on. We've got to leave at this time and move along and all these things. All of that's right. But if you don't factor into that, children, it's time for church, we must assault heaven with prayers that God would pour out His Spirit unto us. Or we can spend the whole day with the gathered church and be nothing better because we need God's Spirit to quicken us. Okay, it's the Lord's Supper. We need to make sure that we're thinking of this and set apart time for examination and think about the way that Christ is presented in the Lord's Supper. All that's true. But we must come with a firm reliance upon God to quicken us by His Spirit. Oh God, as we set apart time to examine, please give me of Your Spirit to do this in a way that is appropriate, right, and beneficial. As we come to the Lord's table... Help me not just to set apart those things that are distractions and think about the right thing, but Lord, I need You to feed me as I partake of the bread and of the wine. You see, the victory once discovered not resting in ourselves, but rather the Spirit who leads us and lives within us will transform the way we approach all of the means of grace. Because we'll finally see them not as the grace itself, but as the means by which the Spirit gives us grace. And so, children, your families probably have a designated place for dinner, a dinner table perhaps in the kitchen or dining room, and you know, you're going to sit there when it's dinner time. And some families have responded and reacted against sort of the casual indifference to these things in the world. And they say, we're really going to make a point that as a family, you know, three nights a week, every night a week, doesn't matter, we're going to sit at this dinner table and eat our food. And so what happens? At the appointed time, mom or dad say it's dinner time, every kid comes and sits around the dinner, dinner table. But every kid there knows. The table is just the instrument upon which the food is going to be set, and then we're going to eat and enjoy that nourishment and health that comes from it. Well, similarly, the Bible, prayer, the sacraments, are these God-ordained and thus important means, necessary means even, by which we wait upon God to fill us. The Spirit is the One who gives us victory in this new war. This is why Paul says in Romans 8 that it's not just that you must mortify the deeds of the body and live. That would be abject legalism. But Rather, as he says, it is that by the Spirit, you must mortify the deeds of the body and live. Notice, for instance, in verse 13 of Romans 8, Paul says, If ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. It's been well said that the Spirit of God is the neglected person of the Trinity. Our lives show it, because without the Spirit of God, our lives, well, they wither. There's no abiding in Christ without the Spirit of God. There's no right use of the Word without the Spirit of God. There's no right use of the sacraments without the Spirit of God. There's no holiness without the Spirit of God. And though we are right to uh, uh, condemn the Pentecostals and Charismatics for their abuses and false teachings, we are wrong to satisfy ourselves with a merely intellectual faith and outward approach to means. We must have the Spirit of God reigning in and through us if we are to know any advance of this victory in the new war. Brethren, as we think on these things, here is a sobering call that you are in a war. Right now, there are things going on in your own soul that were it expressed to the world, you would be embarrassed. There are things that go on in your thoughts passed through on the Lord's Day, that if it were broadcast to as many as in this room, you'd be ashamed. The reason for that, even as a Christian, is because there's still something of sin in you. But, we ought not to forget, there are also things by the Spirit of God that are in you truly, that are beautiful. Not because you're better than others, but because the Spirit of God is at work in you because the Spirit of God has begun a work and will continue it to the end. And so though it's a sobering call that you are in a war, it's actually an encouraging call. Because that there's a war in you necessarily means that there is life in you. And the good news is that the Spirit who has been given will stand victorious and will conquer in accordance to the purpose of God, the purchase of Christ, and every believer will in the end Bring glory and honor to His name. So brethren, what do we do with this? Well, we examine ourselves for a moment. Seriously. Don't examine other people. You know, we hear examine ourselves and we start to go through and we say, yeah, so-and-so needs to get their act together. We need to examine ourselves and ask ourselves, do we realize we're in this war? Do I actually realize that there is a war within me And what am I doing about that? Am I at all engaged in such a way to say, well, if there's a war, I need to be diligent in these things. Okay, that's a plus. But in my diligence, is there a conscious and a deliberate relying upon the Spirit to work? Does that show itself in any zealous petitions? When was the last time I wept before the Lord and said, if you don't work, I've got no hope? None. When was the last time that you and I were moved in that way? It doesn't matter who you think is right in Israel and Gaza. Whoever is facing these things is seeing the overwhelming horror of the dread reality of death. Bombs going off. And people crying out. And they're brought to the brink of crying out for the least mercy. That's what we need to feel to some extent except you, God, give me help, all is lost. The remnant of sin will win the day. In other words, it doesn't bring us to a complacency, well, the Spirit of God's in me. He's got this. We're going to carry on. Rather, it brings us to a diligent reliance, conscious reliance upon Him for Christ's sake to do this. And so examine yourselves. Does that find its mark in your life? I mean, obviously you have to ask, do I pray? That's where you have to start. Do I pray? But when I pray, is there this earnestness to realize I must have the Spirit of God? When you came to church today, were you more concerned about the dress, the suit, the shirt that you would wear? Does it match? The makeup put on? The hair and so on? Or were you saying, whatever else that's true about that, whatever's proper about that, I must take time earnestly to ask the Spirit to be given to me and my brethren. I fear that all of us are more about the outward than we are about the inward. Are we setting apart time in our families before church more than just saying we have to have breakfast at this time, we have to be in the car at this time, we have to get on at that time, but say we have spiritual war going on already in our hearts and with the preaching of God's Word, so we must rely upon God. Brethren, there's no victory without the Spirit. And yet, brethren, the Spirit is given because of the victory of Christ. So Christ, having conquered, has purchased the right that we have now of the Spirit. And it's a blessed thing, isn't it? Christ says, we ask the Father, and the Father is willing to give us even His Spirit. We don't argue with God to get Him to give us these things. We come and appeal for Christ's sake that He would bestow upon us what He's glad to give us. It's not a war to win the Father's willingness to give. It's a war, as it were, for our own souls to see what the Father is willing to give and to ask Him to give freely what He's promised to give us. It's a war wherein there is true confidence as we approach Him through Christ. Would you stand with me for prayer?